HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. This week on Meat and 3, we celebrate good news in the food world, from record-setting butter sculptures to the latest discoveries in crop cultivation. I think it was back in 2015. It was 2,370 pounds, and it was a Paris landscape. And so that became the Guinness World Record butter sculpture. We don't understand everything about the world. So plant breeding also lets us work with all the unknown, maybe discovered along the way. And we hear from the beloved chef and disaster relief organizer, Jose Andres. Well, World Central Kitchen, we're an organization that we like to be the first ones on the ground. And more often than not, we are the last ones on the ground. Tune in to Meet and 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from Full Service Radio at the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. And you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. So my guest today is Nancy Hayden, co-owner of The Farm Between in Jeffersonville, Vermont, and co-author of the new book, Farming on the Wild Side. The Evolution of a Regenerative Organic Farm and Nursery. And the book just came out in September. Nancy, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Um, so congratulations on the book release. I'm sure you were working on it for a while. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and writing a book while also farming seems like it would be quite the endeavor, no? <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was a little challenging, but I did a lot over the winter time so that I had a little more time, or we did. Um, right. Yeah. Well, and you, you're a farmer, but you were also a professor for a long time, is that right? Yes, I was. I mean, that was the reason we came to Vermont. I got a job at the University of Vermont. What did you teach? Um, I was in civil and environmental engineering. I was an environmental engineer, so teaching things like water and wastewater and treatment and cleanup of you know, waste sites and things like that. So Wow. And then how did you get into farming? Um, well, you know, John was, uh, I guess, 
he did mo he stayed home with the kids and did kind of did his own thing here with the farm and I helped out. Okay. Um so that was kind of the, the how we got going and I got more involved as time went on and then when I retired I kind of, you know, started doing a lot more with the nursery and things like that. So Right. And at this point, how long has your farm been in operation? Um, we've had 28 seasons. Wow. Okay. So it's, that's an accomplishment, almost three yeah. decades. Yeah. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I want to ask you about the farm, but, you know, we're sort of talking about it in the context of the book release. And I think a good place to start would be, um, you know, what does wild mean? So the book is called Farming on the Wild Side. Why is that word wild meaningful? Um, well, probably the best way to describe it is like from an ecosystem's perspective. So creating wild spaces within the farm and wild spaces that are going to offer a diversity of plants that will also offer diversity of food and habitats and shelter and protection for insects, birds, and other wildlife. So a good example might be around uh, when we first moved in, there was they were using, they were treating the stream, the seasonal stream as a ditch and just digging it out all the time and mowing right up to it, and right up to the edges and things like that. And you could lose a lot of soil when you had a rainstorm. And um, with the soils here in Vermont, when you lose soil, you also... Um, put a lot of phosphorus into the water and that right. can make its way to Lake Champlain. And um, so letting the, letting, why mow? Let the, for, let the woods and the forest and the shrubs and trees grow up around the stream. It protects the aquatic um, organisms. It keeps it shady. It protects right. the banks. Um, so all these kinds of you know, so that's a, like a good example, but there's also the edges of fields, wildflower meadows we let come back, um, not mowing in between our uh, rows of our apple orchard. You don't need to do that. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of like just creating that wild, that wildness on the farm. But I think in another way, it was also... You know, as kids, we loved the wild spaces in our neighborhoods, always searching out the places where there was woods and streams and things like that. And mm-hmm. and so kind of letting the wildness come back to the farm is also a way of kind of keeping that wildness in ourselves, too. Yeah. And then, uh, and then probably the last thing that, you know, is another little, maybe a little metaphor is, you know, we're farming with this somewhat managed chaos. Mm. And it's a bit of a defiant, wild act. <laughs> so I think that, you know, the farming on the wild side fit, you know, from the most practical, ecological perspective, but then it also fit a little bit more metaphorically uh, as well. Right. So. That, I mean, to me, that just sounds like farming in a way that sort of matches the way that life actually works, right? Managed chaos is, I think you could use that to describe most of what, what our lives look like when, you know, you try to control things that doesn't go well, right? But if you just kind of lean into the managed chaos, it's maybe it's a little bit easier. Right, right. (laughs) Um, Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting to me, you talking about the 
the, for instance, along the stream, not mowing, leaving that to come back and all the benefits of, of that space. Why, why do you think it is most farmers would mow that? Like if, if these spaces are beneficial to a farm and it's more labor to mow or get rid of these wild spaces, why has it become the sort of standard to tame and get rid of those wild spaces on a farm? Well, in Vermont, a lot of uh, farmers, they're farming right up to the edge of the stream. Uh, So they're haying, you know, they're taking the hay. If you, you know, let 20 feet of that stream edge go to woods and stuff like that, you're losing, you know, some of the hay or the corn crop or whatever it is you're trying to grow. So I think that's why a lot of, of farmers do that, even though... In Vermont, you're not supposed to. <laughs> There's rules that say you shouldn't do that, but people still do it. Right. Um, and I think for us, we, you know, we weren't growing corn, we weren't haying, um, so we we were, you know, growing vegetables and fruits and things like that. And we recognized, the, as ecologists, we recognized the value of having these wild spaces because you get a lot of insects and um, some of those can be pests, but uh, a lot of those are beneficial insects, too. And then you get the birds that eat the insects that rely on. There were almost no birds when we <laughs> moved into this farm. You know, everything yeah. was, like, cleaned out. There were no trees or anything. And, uh, you know, the bird life that we have now is just phenomenal. And they're doing a lot of the um, pest management for us. Hmm. So... You know, we, they're our allies. Right. Well, and I mean, are there, are there challenges, though, that come with farming this way um, in terms of, I mean, I was going to ask about pest management, and you're saying it, it might actually be better because the birds come back and they help you, but um, do you ever have major pest problems? And, and when you do, how do you deal with them if you're not um, using pesticides? Well, we have a diversity of crops. Mm-hmm. So if we do, sometimes we, it's not, as John likes to say, it's not all unicorns and rainbows at the <laughs> farm between. <laughs> so we have, uh, we have issues. Right. Um, some of those we can intervene with sort of mechanical, you know, knocking, um, you know, some caterpillars that might be coming, uh, becoming a problem on one of our crops, we can knock them off into a bucket or something like that. Mm. And some of that you can actually, even if you have a long, then we have quite a few gooseberries and, you know, plants and, and um, several rows. And if we get this um, imported current worm problem, I can go through there pretty quickly and kind of clean up a lot of those mm. um, worms and, you know, those little um, insect larvae and prevent problems. So it's not, you know, some people, you know, as running a nursery, we have some people that ask us, like, oh, I have these, you know, I have these imported current worms on my, on my red currants or something. What should I spray? And I'm like, you know, how many bushes do you <laughs> just go out there a couple times a week and knock them off? But people are like, they they kind of were so ingrained to jump to the chemicals Yeah. when so often, you know, in some case like that, you can just, you know, you can just knock off the problem 
by hand. Right. And and then the other thing is sometimes they're there in very small numbers, and the birds and and other um, parasitic wasps and stuff like that are um, are dealing with the problem. So, you know, it's not it's not that big of a deal. So they can um, kind of be there, and you can just let them. It, from an ecological, yeah. yeah, from an ecological perspective, you want some there, right? Because if you don't have any there, then what do the uh, beneficial insects and birds and things like that? What are they going to eat? Mm-hmm. You know, during those times. So, from an ecological standpoint, you want a low level of these so-called pests. You mm-hmm. don't want the big outbreaks because then it can cause some economic damage or even damage the plants and stuff like that themselves so right um well and and what about um crop like uh diseases so i know um you know you're growing a lot of fruit and i know that fruit trees um a lot of growers say that they're very hard to do uh to grow organic and um i mean right now we're seeing a lot of farmers are dealing with uh um apple disease it's the abbreviation is RAD. I can't remember what it stands for. Rapid apple decline, maybe. Mm. Um, and then, you know, orange growers in Florida have been battling citrus greening for a long time. Do you get, do you ever have issues like that um, in your orchards? Well, um, so, one, you know, one of the first things that a lot of our trees are disease-resistant varieties. Uh. So we put, you know, kind of specifically, we didn't put in Macintosh apples because, they have they get stabbed really bad and you know which can actually kill the tree so if you're not using fungicides and things like that then you're going to have that problem so that that's sort of the first thing the other thing is we don't you know these a lot of these growers they have huge acreage of monoculture and you know man if you start getting a problem that's the only crop you've got you know, you can feel for them. You know, they're very risk-averse, and they're not making a whole lot of money on their apple crop or on their orange crop or something like that. So you can kind of understand their thinking about that. Mm-hmm. But we always go back to why are we still um, growing everything in monocultures? Right. Why aren't we thinking about diversifying crops and on a farm and... Um, using, you know, even interspersing, like we put a lot of um, companion plants in our in our um, orchards so that they can also um, be host to some of the same pests that might be on the apples. And then, you know, the birds now have, you know, plenty of food and they're also pollinator plants. So they help you know, getting more of the native bees, you know, supporting the native bees throughout the season. And those are the ones that are pollinating our plant, are pollinating our trees and stuff like that. So I think, you know, a lot of the problems stem from this monoculture mentality. And then that feeds on, you know, you need the pesticides and you need the inputs and you need to import the bees because, uh, honeybees, because you you have acres and acres and acres of almonds and there's no other insects around, you know, to help pollinate. So it's kind of, you know, you have to keep kind of stepping back and saying what, you know, where are some of the real issues and, you know, monoculture systems are, are 
sort of a big issue. Yeah, absolutely. So can you give us a sense of what diversity looks like on your farm? Like what, what did you grow this year? So, um, you know, it's all perennial fruits and Mm -hmm. some perennial vegetables. So um, apples, um, well, let me just start from what blooms first are these things called honeyberries or hascaps, very popular in Canada. They bloom really early, and and it's just so nice to see all the bumblebees on them. (laughs) It's like... (laughs) 35 degree weather and they're out there wow. um, pollinating and, and, you know, looking for pollen and pollinating in the meantime. So those are some of our earliest crops. And then we have a lot of currants, black currants, red currants, gooseberries. Um, we have some of the regular stuff like blueberries and apples and stone fruit, uh, cherries and and plums. Um and then we also have something called aronia berry, mm. which is also known as a black choke berry. It's a native berry. Those um, are getting like some attention for being sort of like, aren't they like super nutrient dense? Super, you know, yeah. highest antioxidants of right. any fruit can grow here. Uh, we actually sold um, our crop, uh, half of our crop, to a local um, brewery in Burlington, Zero Gravity, and then uh, the other half to a Shaxbury Cidery. So oh, I they love really like tannic, so <laughs> you know, these tannic kind of fruits that, that are unusual, but other people are using them in their smoothies and, right. you know, things like that, so they're really healthy. And, um, and we do a lot of elderberry, we do uh, fall raspberries, and um, we do rhubarb. Rhubarb is a big, also popular with um, cideries. Cider, <laughs> they like the, they like some of these unusual fruit that they're growing, and we've really been kind of developing a market right. with them because in Vermont there is a huge um, these beverage entrepreneurial beverage companies, whether it's wineries, cideries, breweries juice makers, that kind of thing. Mm. So um, though they've been really um, great to work with and um, wholesale a lot of our fruit to them. Is that a big so, part of um, your business, wholesale, or do you sell at markets as well? Well, we uh, up until last year, we were selling also fresh fruit to... Um, in the in the Burlington Farmers Market, and we'd make uh, syrups and put them on shaved ice and sell snow cones and you know all this kind of stuff. <laughs> like we decided we're getting too old for this. <laughs> a young person's game, loading up the truck every Saturday, and um, so we've been we've been able to sell all of our fruit that we used to try to. Um, sell fresh we've been able to sell all that um wholesale with that said people weren't you know the local customer wasn't buying aronia (laughs) berries and stuff like that right elderberries maybe because they want to make their own syrups and um and black currants um the people that would buy those all had an accent (laughs) they were either from 
England or Russia huh. or Germany. <laughs> they come out of the woodwork for the black currants because they love them. And it's not as popular with Americans um, to eat those, but they're, they're delicious, and they've got high antioxidants, too. So Interesting. Um, I want to ask you about, you have a chapter in the book called Agroforestry, and I've been reading a little bit about it, and it's um, a really fascinating um, form of agriculture that seems to be getting a little bit more attention now. Can you describe what agroforestry is and how you're practi- how you're practicing it on your farm? Um, you know, I think like agroforestry is a little bit like how people farmed a hundred plus years ago. Right. You know, they had a whole bunch of trees and they grazed their animals. Um, you know, they had they grazed their animals under the trees so it provided shade and they um, had, maybe they had apple trees, and then in between the apple trees, they were grazing their animals, and they let, they had, they protected the stream, they had forests, um, you know, and woods on the edges of their stream, because they didn't have all these big equipment to, mm-hmm. you know, to hay and all that kind of stuff, so... They were doing what now people are saying, wow, this is, these are really great ideas. So uh, that's basically it. You're growing trees and, um, and crops or you're growing trees and uh, grazing your animals in the same sort of farm on right. the same spaces and things like that. So it's very mixed. You don't, you know, you don't have necessarily have a big, giant um, field of something, you might have a hedgerow that in between your fields because they found that, you know, hedgerows, not only is that supporting the wildlife, but it actually causes a lot of your, a lot of crops to grow better because they're just protected um, from strong winds and things like that. So, um, uh, and, you know, I mentioned the streams, protecting the streams is another good example, grazing your animals. We've done a lot with, uh, we have uh, draft horses, mm. sort of the end of their cycle. Um, when we were doing vegetables, that, that it was good to have them for, for some plowing and things like that. But um, now that we're all perennials, they pretty much uh, just do a lot of grazing for us. Mm. Between the rows of apple trees, we can have them graze in our orchard, and then we can plant alley cropping, it's called. Hmm. It's another agroforestry technique. So you plant in between um, the rows, like an annual, or um, we did uh, last year, we had a contract to do the high CBD hemp, which Hmm. is craze in Vermont. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like it's a craze everywhere. It's yeah, it is. Incredible how it, fast We did it last year, but we're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, but that, that's that's some of the types of techniques that people can do, um, yeah. can use, and I think it's really uh, proving itself. Again, it's sort of this, I think what's different is the mentality that people are having and it's getting away from this monoculture mentality into an integrated 
ecological system. Right. And that's where we can really, um, you know, make a, make a difference in agriculture because right now most agriculture is actually causing harm. Mm-hmm. It's causing pollution. It's losing CO2 into the atmosphere, you know, generating um, emissions and things like that. It's, you know, using pesticides that are getting, uh, that are harming uh pollinators, you know, bees and things like that. So, um, but by using some of these other techniques, we can start sequestering carbon in soils, no-till soils, so you're not um, turning up the soil all the time, causing that bacteria to eat the organic matter and emit it as CO2. Um, So you can sequester CO2 in the soils, in the trees, the the woody shrubs and um, actually make a difference. So now be a sink for CO2, and you've got these forested areas along your stream, so you're preventing um, contaminants and pollutants and, and sediments from being washed away. So it's really, it really needs to be how we start um, changing our, our whole paradigm, our whole thinking about agriculture right. instead of an extractive into a regenerative, and that's going to be better for everybody. Right. And I mean, you have a whole chapter in the book on climate change, um, and obviously the moment we're in, all in right now, we you know are all talking about it a lot because it is a crisis moment. Um, I'm curious, are you noticing any of the effects of the changing climate on your farm yet in Vermont? Oh, yeah. 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 Things like, uh, well, let's see. We had uh, Hurricane Irene in 2011, which was the second 500-year flood that summer that <laughs> flooded our farm. It was a big change for us. We, like, you know, we've got to do, we were already changing to perennials, and it really said, no, we've got to go 100% now. That was a good, good kick in the butt. Two, not this past summer, but the summer before, we had severe drought in mm. our area of Vermont and where our farm was. So we had, you know, lost some some of our... With perennials, the nice thing is um, they were affected and there was a fair amount of dieback in some of our crops in terms of the plant, but they're robust enough. Um, they're pretty tough enough that, yeah, they'll lose some branches and things like that, but they, they don't die completely. So it does affect, the, it did affect the crop this year for like elderberries and stuff like that. Right. Um, the other big thing that we have is these um, temperature swings in the winter. Mm. And, you know, it can get up to 40 and, you know, you might have a 35, 40 degree day in the winter. And then, you know, two nights later, it's 20 below. Oh and that kind of, those kinds of temperature swings are really tough on, pereni- on, on perennial plants and trees and things like that. So that's a, that's a little, um, you know, something to think about in terms of that. I mean, so far it, it, it's affected, it seems like it affects our blueberry crop a lot, and hmm. we get a lot of dieback on our blueberries. But, um, and that's tough because you're planting perennials, presumably because they're more resilient to the effects of climate change, right? And, or right. The, 
but then they're actually, unfortunately, there's this other way in which the effects of climate change are maybe affecting the perennials even more than... Right, yeah. right. Well, it, it usually like affects things like their uh, flower buds. Mm. A lot of these big temperature swings or you get rain and then it freezes and that, that does a lot. Although, you know, most of what we're growing is like blueberries are native plants to this area. Right. So they, you know, they're pretty robust in themselves. So it doesn't really necessarily kill the, it didn't, doesn't kill the plant. It's just like that year you might not get a good blueberry crop. Got so it. for us, that's why we have so many different crops because if, um, you know, like we didn't have a good blueberry crop this year, but we had a really great aronia crop and raspberry crop and apple crop so usually, you know, if something's not that good, there's, you know, a whole bunch of other things that are, that are, um, are making up, you know, picking up the slack. So yeah. Um, on that note, uh, we have to take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about how you make the economics work. We'll be right back. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe. Taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Tickets available now at heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report, and I'm here. I've been speaking with Nancy Hayden, author of Farming on the Wild Side. We covered a lot before the break, and you know, right before we were kind of talking about the effects of climate change, and Nancy, you were talking a little bit about how when one crop fails, you have other crops that you can rely on. That's one of seems like one of the benefits of a diverse farm, right? Um, right. And you know, I'm I'm really interested in this question of how people are making small, regenerative, diversified farms economically sustainable. It's just, it seems to be really hard. And as a reporter, I've been talking to lots of farmers who are having trouble making it work. Um, And in your book, you have various chapters about kind of, you've tried different approaches in terms of what you were growing to make the economics work. So can you talk a little bit about like 
based on your experience, what you've learned over the years about how to make this kind of farm work economically? Um, yeah, that's always a tough question. <laughs> it's hard, right? <laughs> it is. Um, you know, we came, as I mentioned, we came to Vermont. I had a good paying job, um, healthcare, you know, that's all the bank considered for the mortgage. They didn't consider farm, you know, potential farm earnings in terms of what kind of mortgage we could get and everything. Um, so in, in a lot, and I liked my job. It wasn't like I was forced to work off the farm or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I liked my job. It freed up John to stay home with the kids um, and, you know, experiment and learn and create um, you know, some really interesting integrated, you know, crop and livestock systems and then with the with the horses and, you know, trying CSAs and, um, you know, a lot of different things. And the beauty was, I mean, basically the farming operation paid for itself. It paid for labor. It paid for, um, you know, supplies and equipment and things like that. But it didn't pay the mortgage, and it didn't pay the, right. <laughs> didn't so, pay the you know, kids' college education and all that kind of stuff. So it, it provided us an amazing, rich um, experiences as well as great food. Right. And um, so, you know, those are kind of like, you know, even for the kids, it provided them, you know, a great learning experiences, and um, they helped you know, some jobs for the summer, you know, a lot of things like that. So it was, it was great. But then I wanted to, I was thinking about, you know, I wanted to retire early. I had an option to do that. And we were like, the mortgage was paid off. Kids were gone. You know, can we even support the two of us on this, you know, small fruit farm? And even after that, that was a question. That was a serious question. Yeah. Yeah. um, Because, you know, things are, things, you know, <laughs> a lot of expenses. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, you know, the the nursery, we started the nursery that, um, then at the same time we were doing a lot of um, value-added fruit, um, things like that. And, and we thought that we'd be able to um, do it. And so I did retire early. And we were able to do it. It was it was tight, mm. and um, but we were able to pay the bills. Like, again, the mortgage was done, right. so that freed up a lot. <laughs> yeah. um, and you know, um, and so it worked. But it, the the food, I think, is was the fruit and the nursery and things like that. They were high value um, vegetables. You know, and there's a lot of competition with small vegetable farmers. Um, I, I don't, I'm not sure we could have really, you know, me retired and really done it. Um, you know, I think this the fruit is what allowed us because you can get a lot for organic fruit. There's a lot of markets for, you know, wholesale fruit, like I mentioned, these breweries, these right. beverage entrepreneurs and things like that. Um, and the nursery, people really want to start growing their own. Um, so that kind of worked, and the ec- economics worked out for us. Um, and plus, you know, we were aging, and we didn't have the 
kind of energy that we had when we were in our 30s. Yeah. So we had to <laughs> figure that into the equation, too. Um, and, uh, yeah, we were able to make it work. But like I said, we weren't paying a mortgage and sending our kids to college at that point. They were already done. So. Well, and you, and you just said that, you know, like if it had been just a diversified vegetable farm, you don't think you would have been able to do it. Like, isn't that kind of a crazy... A crazy fact that, that like, people can't make vegetables work? I mean, they can, but they need to be bigger. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. our friends down the road um, from us that we've been longtime friends with um, for 28 years, and they have um, an organic vegetable farm. They also have a a nursery, uh, um, you know, for starts and flowers and things like that. Um, and they, but they're a lot bigger. Yeah. And maybe they're a lot better too. I don't know. But, you <laughs> well, know, they, they were able to make it work and, you know, save for college and pay, you know, exorbitant healthcare costs and things like that because of our crazy healthcare system and stuff like that. But, you know, so people can make it work, yeah. which, you know, I think on the small acreage that we have, our best bet really was these, uh, perennials and uh, perennial fruit and things like that, nursery and stuff like that, high-value um, high value crops. Right, yeah, you weren't interested in expanding and getting bigger. And, no. Right. No. Yeah. Um, one thing that I wanted to, kind of like looping back to what we talked about in the beginning and the sense of wildness on the farm um, I've heard from a lot of farmers who farm like you do or in a similar way, right? Like doing diversified organic production or some form of permaculture that other farmers or neighbors see their farms and think like, what a mess, (laughs) right? Like people don't (laughs) like, you know, aren't farms supposed to look like perfectly uniform rows of corn? (laughs) Um, I guess I'm curious, do you get that? from people and is there like is that part of this book is like educating about what firms can look like right yeah I think that's sort of what I I mentioned that sort of defiant wild act Mm. because um yeah we people do think that we're not keeping it up and um and and, you know the the farm when we bought it it this is sort of a you know, bucolic dairy farm, the big barn and and big red barn and all that kind of stuff. We've actually seen that picture uh, of our of our barn on like from and this egg carton from Pennsylvania. They put some chickens in front of it, um, and somebody had it like from an Iowa, like oh my su- God. supposedly an Iowa scene. And I'm like, what? Because they think that is the, you know, bucolic, right. the way a farm should look. And the the bottom line is the farmers that had the farm before us, the dairy farmers, they went out. Yeah. They couldn't make it right. in the eighties. They they had to go out. So it wasn't a profitable, productive farm. And we've been doing this for twenty eight years and granted we're not getting rich on it, but it's been productive and we've, you know, it's helped us economically. And now, you know, we're 
able to, you know, reap the benefits of it and things. So it's, uh, yeah, we need to rethink pretty. We need to, you know, mowed lawns and is, are there really biological deserts and yeah. having trees on your lawn that are ornamentals that no insects eat? I mean, what kind of thinking is that? They're not doing anything. They're yeah. not doing what they're supposed to do. And people wonder why they don't have any birds. Right. <laughs> so, you know, it's all connected. And I think that's, you know, that's what we were trying to really say in the book, you know, is really thinking, um, you know, getting out of our, our mindsets that we have, whether it's pesticides or lawns or whatever, you know, rethinking this ecologically mm-hmm. and what makes sense for, um, you know, your own patch of land that you manage, um, and whether it's a lawn or a big farm, and really, you know, kind of going going against the grain, really, because, mm-hmm. you know, we're not doing things correctly now. Right. <laughs> so... So do you, yeah, I can I can imagine other farmers saying the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> especially farmers. You know, I've talked to organic farmers that are in kind of you know in the Midwest or in areas where there is a lot of row crop production. So oh yeah, when they're sort of their farm is among those, it looks so different. And and even if it's not as wild as yours, even it can look wild compared to you know just rows and rows that look kind of immaculate and uniform. Um, right, and, and yeah, and they're using all the GMO corn and spraying uh, the herbicides, and they're not, they don't have anything in between the rows anymore. Yeah. And, and what's the problem? Well, now we don't even have butterfly populations because mm-hmm. they have nothing to live off in the Midwest. So it's all connected. Yeah. Yeah. So who do you see the book... Uh, farming on the wild side. Who is it for? Do you do you think it's for farmers who want to um, follow you and kind of farm in a similar way, or do you see it as being for like a larger population? Well, we really hope that it can inspire everybody to sort of rethink their relationship with their environment and with you know whether it's a potted plant in their apartment and the uh, and uh, a park across the street or their lawn or their farm or everybody, you know. I mean, we give a lot of our our philosophy, a lot of our ecology background and thinking, and that's what we really hope to inspire people to, you know, think more ecologically. And I guess that's... Yeah, so it's for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Makes a great Christmas gift. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's good timing, right? (laughs) Well, Nancy, thank you so much for coming on the Farm Report. It was great having you. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you all so much for listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. I'll see you next week. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. 
Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com backslash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.